and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And I know I say this every week, but as ever, we have got so much to cram in in our time together. So if it's okay with all of you, this is how we're going to uh, structure our time together. Uh, I'll make a few of the assembly notices to sort of keep us all informed of the twists and turns. Um, And then again, if it's okay with all of you, I want to reflect on two consequences so far uh, from the confidence vote last week. One is the call from a range of Tory MPs, uh, commentators and indeed cabinet ministers for, in inverted commas, tax cuts. I want to explore those two words so potent in British politics since the early 1980s um, and what it really means. It's, it's, it's repeated as if it is in itself a kind of so obvious, um, but it's not. And inevitably, we are going to return briefly uh, uh, to Brexit because you just can't get away from it. The Irish question occurs again and again because, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, there is no answer to it. And unsurprisingly, the protocol negotiated and proclaimed as a triumph by Lord Frosty and Boris Johnson uh, is under all sorts of pressure. So, uh, and with all kinds of consequences. So I'll be reflecting on those two immediate kind of consequences. Johnson trying to please his backbenchers. He has no choice but to try and please them. They have leverage over him. And what pops up? Tax cuts. And, oh, yeah, we're going to take them on over the protocol that we ourselves negotiated. Anyway, I'll be reflecting on those two themes. And then over to you with some, as ever, fantastic questions which cast so much light on so many of the themes whirling around British politics at the moment. But before all of that, um, thank you those who came to King's Place Live or watched it on the stream. A special thank you to Stuart Grant, who um, uh, not only turned up, but presented to me live on stage at the beginning of the second half the Union Jack socks that um, I have been yearning for as a particular tribute to Lord Frosty Frost, who, by the way, you know when he was a minister and I said, you watch it, he won't be a minister much longer. He will go on the media and pontificate from the safety of a studio or his computer um, because he, he can't face the consequences of own Brexit. Well, even I had no idea he would be quite so bloody ubiquitous. I'm thinking of being an MP, advising on a whole range of policies from his new lofty distance. I mean, Johnson must be apoplectic with him. Anyway, more of that uh, later. Stuart, thank you so much. Uh, You were absolutely brilliant. In fact, Stuart has emailed uh, since to say, uh, do let us all know if you've started having nostalgic thoughts about imperial measures, the war, or or developing any staunch royalist tendencies, now I'm wearing the Union uh, uh, socks. Or, Stuart wants to know if it gets really bad, am I starting to hero-worship Lord Frosty Frost himself? Yeah, when you put these Union Jack socks on, 
you sort of become Lord Frosty Frost. Um, and it is exciting, exhilarating. Um, anyway, look, thank you um, so much, uh, Stuart, and for all your many contributions and for a lovely bottle of wine. And we're going to meet up and uh, have a glass and toast uh, Frosty the socks and all that's going on. Stuart, by the way, is a very interesting listener more widely because uh, he is not, he, he hasn't voted Labour recently, but says he's a kind of person, a voter that Labour needs to target to win next time, and he is not there yet. Um, so uh, keep us informed on all of that, Stuart. I'd also like to thank the uh, Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot from the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross. Uh, regular listeners will know um, his brilliant and important contributions to the situation in Ireland. Um, he, he's got a question this week, or not a question, actually a point or a response to an emailer last week. Um, but Paul came along uh, and it was his birthday. I hope, Paul, you were in London anyway, but I, any, whatever permutation, hugely honoured that you spent your birthday evening um, at Rock and Roll uh, Politics. And it was great to meet other Rock and Roll Politics, uh, part of the cooperative. Uh, Noah Keat, who has finished his degree, Scott Creswell, Butston Phil, Matt Hayden, I, and, and lots of others, some of whom will get references later on um, because they've asked questions, as have some of that group. So, yeah, live. We all kind of got together. We didn't bake bread live or go running together uh, along the canal. Although, actually, it's a very nice run along the canal by King's Place. Another time. Um, but it was great. And I will report in a moment your predictions for those of you who weren't there in the hall or on the stream. Uh, so you know to prepare for the opposite to happen because our predictions are always wrong. Um, just one other notice. Uh, yeah, Rock and Roll Politics is now live back at the Edinburgh Festival. So uh, if you've got a pen before you've started running to listen to the podcast or walking the dog or swimming, um, it's at the space at the Symposium Hall. Um, Rock and Roll Politics Live. You can start your day at the Edinburgh Festival. It's at that regular time again of 11 o'clock in the morning. So have a cup of coffee, come along. And the tickets are now on sale. They're from Monday, August the 15th, all the way through to the final weekend on August the 27th. Every day, the show will be different every day or we'll explore different themes throughout those uh, last two weeks of the festival. And the tickets are on sale um, if you Google Steve Richards Rock and Roll Politics Edinburgh Festival or go to the Edinburgh Fringe site and you can get the tickets there. And yeah, Book your date. See you there. Um, God knows where we'll be by then. A lot's going to happen before then um, to um, shape our time together at the festival. And all of the, those of you who subscribe on Patreon, some of you tell me you're now getting your rock and roll politics mugs. I'm excited. Do send me photos um, of you having coffee with the mug. Rock and roll politics, a cup of consequences. Um, only us lot will know what that means but at least we all do. So uh, thank you for those of you subscribing. Oh, yeah, you should have now your bonus podcast, the first of those looking at relationships between prime ministers and their key advisor, this one being Johnson and, uh, blimey, I forgot his name for a second, Dominic Cummings. How could I ever forget that name? Going crazy. 
Anyway, uh, before I reflect on that two-word phrase, tax cuts, or what is it? What is it? Is it a phrase, a slogan, an aspiration? <laughs> anyway, um, your predictions. Both the in-hall audience at King's Place and on the stream predicted that Boris Johnson will still be Prime Minister by the time of the Conservative Party conference in early autumn. And you also predicted that Keir Starmer would still be Labour leader by the time of the Labour conference, again in early autumn, uh, by huge majorities in both cases, about 80%, 20% in both cases. So that must be the most alarming news both uh, Johnson and Starmer have received for years. Um, just as, you know, Johnson was there, I've got through this confidence, but you come and make a prediction that he's safe into the autumn. Um, and he will therefore prepare for the absolute worst. And uh, you all analysed the minds of the Durham police and concluded uh, that Starmer won't be getting the uh, penalty notice which would trigger his resignation. Let's see. Politics on edge at the moment. Um, talking of which, isn't it interesting when a prime minister becomes fragile, a party, uh, his or her party, becomes far more assertive and starts to almost make demands with a swagger. And this is such an astonishing reversal of roles for the current Conservative governing party. Um, a year ago, when Boris Johnson uh, and the Conservatives gained the Hartlepool seat in that by-election, uh, Boris Johnson was the most dominant, omnipotent Prime Minister of modern times, far more dominant over his government and party than, say, Tony Blair, who always had to think about Gordon Brown and what Gordon Brown was doing and, and responding to what Tony Blair wanted to do much more dominant than um, David Cameron, who had to work with the Lib Dems, and indeed more dominant, um, in, in a sense, than Margaret Thatcher, who tended to choose cabinets of heavyweights who would dare to scrutinise her. Michael Heseltine and others uh, dared to, every now and again, challenge her assumptions and quite often shallow orthodoxies. Um, Johnson, who cannot bear scrutiny, of any kind, uh, chose deliberately a weak cabinet and so on. Um, and he was utterly dominant. Every decision had to go through him. And even though he U-turned regularly, it was his decision to U-turn. It wasn't to save his political career. Now, uh, everybody suddenly becomes assertive within his party because they know he is weak and they have leverage. Uh, up pops again um, in a new guise, the ERG, those instinctive insurrectionists who are only really happy when rebelling against their leader and prime minister and others. And the first cry is tax cuts. Uh, now, this uh, is very interesting for many reasons. Uh, but first of all, an example of the cry, it's come, the health secretary, Sajid Javid, gave an interview to the Times on Saturday, and the headline was, uh, we need a smaller state and tax cuts. Uh, 
This from the health secretary who has basically swallowed up the national insurance rise to pay for the backlog uh, of demand in the NHS, which incidentally is being met only haphazardly. More of that in a minute. Who else called for tax cuts? Inevitably, Lord Frosty Frost was out and about giving, uh, writing articles, giving interviews, saying uh, tax cuts are what it's all about. Let's pause a second and reflect on that. Uh, Lord Frosty Frost has never, um, uh, by the way, Stuart and others, I'm sitting here in my Union Jack socks, uh, so really I am Frost, but let me detach myself from that appalling state of being and note, Lord Frosty Frost has never had to face the electorate, let alone been in a department where spending is an issue. Education, health, transport, defence, come on to all of that in a minute. No, no, just this generalised phrase, tax cuts, as if the two words explain themselves. They are an inherent virtue which demands no further expansiveness. Oh, yes, tax cuts, tax cuts. Um, and on we go, columnists at the Telegraph, you know, is we, what we need are tax cuts, columnists sometimes at the Times and the Sun and Tory MPs popping up. What we really need are tax cuts. But then let's pause and reflect a bit about what that really means. Uh, uh, at its kind of biggest level, it shows the spell that Thatcherism still casts over the uh, Conservative Party. Um, the legendary academic, author, uh, writer Tim Bale noted there's almost a sort of knee-jerk Thatcherite response, he noted on Twitter, um, when the Tory party kind of becomes assertive, tax cuts, as if this is, as I say, an inherent virtue obvious to all. Um, and that sort of Thatcherite spell is cast, as I reflected a bit last week, uh, Johnson and, to some extent, Theresa May have sought to move away from that spell, but they are brought back right into it. Um, and this generalised cry for tax cuts is the most vivid example. And yet, even within some of those crying out for tax cuts, in inverted commas, there are contradictions. Uh, let us begin with Sajid Javid. Um, even though he claims now that he has the resources to address the NHS crisis, he doesn't. And he will discover he hasn't, not least because in theory at least, though I suspect not in practice, some of the money from the national insurance increase, or most of it actually, is meant to be going in the end on social care. Well, when's that going to happen? Um, are they going to cut the NHS budget by billions to pay for social care? Of course they're not. So currently we're in this mad position where Boris Johnson proclaimed an historic moment when at last the government addresses the need for social care funding and it's all going elsewhere, not on social care. So at some point, Javi, because he will in effect become responsible for social care in some ways more directly if they get the reforms in order, 
um, will be calling for more money for social care because he's not going to cut his NHS budget. Where's that going to come from if his priority is vaguely proclaimed tax cuts? And then you look elsewhere, the levelling up agenda. A lot of people regarded the levelling up white paper, when I say a lot of people, some Tory MPs, as anticlimactic. Here was the government's great mission, levelling up, great mission, mission even, uh, levelling up. And what happened? Uh, the white paper was uh, eloquent uh, and uh, at times interestingly argued, but it was more an argument than a series of substantial propositions because Michael Gove could get no more money. And the advisor he brought in, and it was a good appointment, Andy Haldane from the Bank of England, knows better than most that billions and billions are required for levelling up. Well, where's that going to come from if tax cuts are the main priority? As I say, vaguely specified. Um, and, you know, and they all say, oh, it can come from savings and efficiencies. Now, I'm a great one for savings, and I know money is wasted in uh, the, the repertoire of government spending. But tax cuts are pretty expensive if they're to be uh, have much impact. And yet, there are two examples, the NHS and social care levelling up. Then what about defence? Tory MP after Tory MP cries out for higher defence spending. Um, and after the situation in Ukraine, that cry became even more uh, demanding. Uh, it's quite clear now, they all said, and in fact some cabinet ministers said it in public, that uh, the world has changed and British defence spending will have to go up. Um, let's look elsewhere. This summer of uh, pay disputes uh, with inflation in the background raging, um, some of which will be settled with higher than planned uh, pay rises, including in the public sector. Um, it, it, I cannot see this uh, weak uh, government with a capacity for U-turns not succumbing to some extent. Well, where's that money going to come from? Um, if tax cuts, in inverted commas, are being crying out for. I mean, just elsewhere, you know, the, there's so much talk at the moment of the crumbling transport system in Britain. People tweeting, you know, my friend Aisha Hazarika tweeted the other day, she was on a train from Scotland, they were all kicked off at Preston, waiting ages. So what is wrong with this country's transport system? It's partly about its fragmentation, um, and that has been a scandal on every level. The deregulation of buses and the fractured railway system. But it also is about resources. Uh, where's that going to come from? But no, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts are the great cry at the moment. And uh, no doubt that cry will be met because when a prime minister is weak, he has no choice but to uh, appease the potential or actual dissenters in his parliamentary party and government. And much more serious, all potential successors to Johnson know what they have to do to have a chance of succeeding. 
echo that cry. Tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. But how do you address the demand as if it's kind of detached from that cry for greater public spending, for levelling up, defence, transport, NHS and social care? Now, the pure Thatcherites will argue that tax cuts will generate greater growth, which will then pay for these uh, improvements in public services. All we can say is that did not happen in the 1980s, when public services were on their feet. Um, Certainly by 1997, uh, after that long period of Thatcherite economics, um, people were comparing hospitals, distinguished people, were comparing hospitals unfavourably with some of those in the third world or in Eastern Europe, um, the, the trains were a complete bloody disaster. So all we can say is on the evidence of that period, which is the model for a lot of these conservatives, there was not an improvement of public services as if by magic, by that word reform. Um, you need investment as well. And the tax cuts did not generate the level of growth to compensate for the fall in public spending that inevitably arises if you're focusing on tax cuts rather than, say, tax rises. So there we are. Uh, Follow that one very closely because it will be met, uh, tax cuts. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Uh, Such is going to be the fever of this summer and early autumn, political and economic fever, that, in inverted commas, tax cuts are delivered in the autumn budget and there will be a euphoria. But then those very same MPs, in some cases, will start saying, hold on, where's this levelling up agenda? You know, the Red Wall MPs. Where's the money to invest to improve our towns, uh, etc., etc.? Watch that dance because, I'm sorry, I'm going to mention our favourite word. Tax cuts bring with it consequences and limits the amount that can be invested in much-needed improvements to public services, say whether it's defence, big favourite of the Tories, or indeed levelling up the supposed mission of the government. So that's one interesting thing to watch. The other has been, and there has been a sort of inevitability about this, um, that Steve Baker and the Tory ERG group as was are back, uh, demanding the most, uh, as they would see it, robust approach to the recalibration of the Northern Ireland Protocol. No mention of the uh, European Court of Justice. No, no, no. Britain alone linked again Northern Ireland, even though there's a border there at the uh, initiation of Boris Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost. Um, And uh, it is being done in a panic and in a rush, oh yeah, by the way, sorry, before we get to that, talk about announcements being made in a panic and in a rush. Uh, Johnson's housing announcement last Friday absolutely is in that category. No additional resources for his uh, supposedly big announcement on those on benefit being able to get mortgages. Uh, nothing from the Treasury. Unsurprisingly, given the demand for Tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. Um, But more than that, nothing to address the fundamental problem 
of housing in Britain, uh, supply. Uh, it was the problem when uh, Thatcher sold off all the council houses in the 80s. New Labour didn't do anything about housing of any substance and significance. And uh, nor has these four terms of Conservative government. Um, but the protocol similarly has been um, addressed in a kind of feverish uh, panic. Uh, apparently in the cabinet last week, uh, Johnson sided with the more considered approach of Sunak and Gove, both of whom recognise the terrible economic... I'm going to mention that word again, everybody. The terrible economic consequences of, inverted commas, a war with Europe. And one or two others who recognise um, that to alienate the United States administration at this point, with Ukraine still a huge issue, and anyway, the increasing isolation of this United Kingdom government... Um, is deeply unwise. And Johnson, who I think is torn on this, uh, instinctively kind of sided with that expediency. But then he met the Steve Baker and all the zealots um, and Liz Truss, who wants Johnson's job, is kind of uh, moving with the zealots because she sees this as one route to the number 10 job. There she is, Liz Truss, with her increasingly imperious Thatcherite act. Um, I mentioned this at King's Play. She's making a big mistake to impersonate Thatcher full stop. But more specifically, she's impersonating Thatcher at her imperious end, not when Thatcher was first leader of the Tory party, when she was rather sort of kind of eccentrically manic, really. The imperiousness became apparent after the Falklands War when she referred to the wartime Prime Minister of 1940-45 to 45 as Winston, even though she didn't know him. And then those landslide victories went to her head. She did become imperious, but not before she became leader. Um, but there she is, Liz Trusk, siding with the, um, the Tory hardline Brexiteers, and Johnson wobbled and moved in their direction. And so the Brexit debate returns, and it never went away. It only went away in the sense that the Labour leadership is too scared and not agile enough to highlight what has gone wrong um, it should be a gift to an agile leadership. Um, uh, and, and the BBC is too scared of the government and has a naive view that the people are bored with it and have moved on and therefore they shouldn't report it. Obviously, they'll report the protocol uh, drama, but it's back. And it's back with the same sort of internal cracks within the Conservative Party. And it's back because, as Theresa May discovered and Boris Johnson is discovering now... The UK was the least suited to leave the European Union because of the Irish question. Northern Ireland out, the rest of Ireland still in. Both the UK and Ireland joined on the same day. Uh, the Good P Friday peace process revolved around the uh, free flow of goods and movement and so on. Uh, based on the membership of the European Union, and there is no clear answer to it. 
Uh, so, you know, but, but Boris Johnson is not in a strong enough position to assert what part of him probably would like to do, which is to be more pragmatic. I don't get the impression he wants another, in inverted commas, war with uh, Europe. Um, I get the impression that he is annoyed with Lord Frosty Frost, with his platitudes from the safe distance, having walked away from the job where he would have had to face these practical consequences. But he's weak. And he knows that of the various groups that will make a move against him, uh, these uh, Steve Baker rebels are experienced in wielding the political knife. So already you can see um, the weaknesses that arose from that confidence vote having immediate uh, consequences on the direction of travel. Now, this is bad for the country. Whether it means that Boris Johnson uh, is already moving towards his doom is much less clear. Uh, what the triggers will be, whether the by-elections will really have the impact that some thought it would before the vote of confidence and so on. But you can see that a prime minister who had a capacity to change his mind at his most imperious peak... Um, before all of the stuff that's happened um, over the parties and what have you, um, is now at the whim of these uh, power plays within the Tory parliamentary party. Um, and it's difficult because the parliamentary party, as ever, is split over what to do on this and indeed on economic policy, because some do recognise there are choices and dilemmas about tax cuts versus investment in the areas that they want to see investment in and indeed need to if they want to have a chance in the next election. They go into the next election with the NHS in crisis, with social care not addressed, even though Boris Johnson began his premiership claiming untruthfully to have a plan for social care, uh, with levelling up uh, no more than a, another slogan. They're going to be in trouble. Uh, even against uh, uh, a Labour Party, still unclear of itself, really. Um, so, yeah, epic weeks coming up, you know, this summer um, and into the early autumn. So we've all got together at the Ed get together at the Edinburgh Festival, that's for sure. Um, but, of course, here as well. Talking of which, we're going to go now, if it's OK with all of you, to your questions. And if you're out running and um, uh, cooking and haven't got time to take a note of the email address, for those of you who don't know it, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Steve, then R-I-C, 1-4 at iCloud.com. Now, I mentioned earlier the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who kindly came to King's Place on his birthday. Uh, he replied to um, uh, Jeff Strange, who wrote an email about the rise of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. And Jeff has certainly been following this closely for many, many years and spends a lot of time uh, in uh, Ireland. Um, uh, anyway, uh, 
Uh, Paul says, this narrative, which is now widespread in the media, is simply not borne out by statistics. The Sinn Féin vote in Northern Ireland has remained more or less static. This, I think, was the point Paul made uh, in an earlier email in the immediate aftermath of the elections. If I were a Sinn Féin supporter, I'd be wondering why uh, Michelle O'Neill, who Jeff uh, described, uh, I think with some justification, as a kind of fully developed big figure, uh, uh, but uh, Paul wonders, the, or says the question should be, why didn't she win more seats? It's fair to say that Sinn Féin are making rapid headway in polls in the Republic of Ireland. We can expect a Sinn Féin Taoiseach after the next general election in Ireland, and that will make relations between London and Dublin rather interesting. I do sympathise with Jeff's view that there's a leadership deficit in the DUP, they were sucked into a Johnsonian web of whiff, waff, waff, and have been punished badly. Now, I'll say that again. They were sucked in, I love it, it's kind of uh, Joycean. They were sucked into a Johnsonian web of whiff, waff, and have been punished badly. The DUP have played their hand poorly since their supply and confident agreement with Theresa May. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Uh, the politics of Ireland, Northern Ireland, are rich in themselves. And when you uh, add to that the situation with Brexit and this um, confused, bewildered British government, uh, w- what a, a cocktail. Anyway, thank you very much. And, and again, happy birthday, Paul, for last week. Uh, Gillian Oliver uh, writes, noting... Um, uh, uh, the Prince Charles comments apparently in private condemning this mad scheme of uh, the government to uh, send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Um, and then noting also criticism from the Archbishop on the same theme. She says, we wonder about the monarchy and the point of it. However, I sense some interesting potency being displayed. First, the Archbishop going for the government on this Rwanda policy and now uh, Prince Charles. Could it be that our great sleepy institutions are perking up and finding their voice? It's happened with the courts, has it not, over Brexit um, and over the proroguing of Parliament, etc. Yeah, it it is certainly happening, uh, Gillian. She says, by the way, on behalf of all of us, she's going to keep an eye out for more ecclesiastical developments. Um, oh, and Gillian says, thanks for the podcast. I love hearing it. Thank you, Gillian. And thank you for keeping an eye out for ecclesiastical developments. She also notes that Jesse Norman, one of the Tory dissenting MPs, described the Rwanda plan as uh, not just ugly, but uh, ugly and racist uh, in its... Um, Oh, no, she says that. Yeah, uh, Jesse Norman said it was ugly. And she says, I think the Queen sees this too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Gillian also notes that this happened in the 80s uh, with things like uh, Faith in the City uh, in 1985. What I do wonder, though, is, um, yes, there is potency in it generates a sense of outrage amongst those of us who are outraged um, whether it sways those who think oh yeah great this government yeah kicking out these people sorting it out protecting our uh, borders taking we're taking back control uh, 
I have doubts, and that's based again, if you look back to the 80s, um, the government got into, uh, um, the Thatcher government got to one clash after another with the church and the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and then went on to win landslide election victory after another. So I wonder whether its capacity to sway public opinion is as potent, you suggest, Gillian, but let's see. Uh, but certainly, yeah, the institutions that you might kind of think would be as kind of fearful as, say, the BBC is of the government or parts of the BBC. I mean, you should never think of the BBC as a coherent collective whole. There are so many layers of managers and so on, the kind of differences. Um, but there is, a, a, a from at the top, a, a, a timidity uh, and fearfulness that does spread down, um, whereas other institutions are being quite robust, as you have noted. Keep us informed, Gillian. Uh, Owen Jarvis says, uh, really enjoyed the event at King's Place. Thank you, Owen. Here's to many more. Yeah, thank you. There's one on, uh, the next one at King's Place is September the 19th. Uh, Owen says, I'm still trying to make sense of Boris Johnson's housing policy announcements last week. Um, yeah, well, I've already referred to that. He said, uh, about the sort of shallow nature of it. He says, do you agree there are examples of better models of how to do policy making from the recent past that are more col collaborative and more likely to have a significant positive impact? I wonder whether longer-term parliaments and longer-term manifestos over 10 years, say, might shift parliament to longer-term thinking on key issues. This is one of the problems with democratic politics, I'm afraid, Owen. You can't have 10-year parliaments. Um, you know, imagine, oh, this, uh, well, maybe we're going to get Boris Johnson for 10 years. But, I mean, it's, um, it's too long. Uh, governments need to be held to account uh, by the wider electorate more regularly than that. Uh, and five years is, I think, the absolute maximum. A president in the United States gets four years and only two terms. But you identify the problem with this, which is it's bound to encourage feverish short-term thinking rather than longer-term uh, policy-making. And uh, it's, in fairness to Johnson, it's not just him. All governments halfway through a parliament begin to think of how they can hold on to power and win the next general election, and that's the key. And in opposition, some oppositions do have uh, dare to have long-term thinking and planning. And by the way, they are the ones that tend to win. Uh, but ironically, a lot of oppositions, especially Labour oppositions, where they are facing an often hostile media, uh, don't plan for the long term and um, uh, just say what they think is necessary to win. And often they misread that as well on the basis of Labour's electoral record. Um, but um, that, that need for longer term policymaking is absolutely there and is one of the reasons why uh, Britain at the moment appears to be and is in many ways dysfunctional. Um, Sean Colston uh, says, great show at King's Place. Oh, thank you, Sean. Uh, and he says, I've been reading an article today where a Labour MP is reported to have said that Keir Starmer doesn't think it's his job to come up with ideas. I don't know which one that is, Sean. Uh, but interestingly, uh, Keir Starmer is writing a book to set out his vision. 
I think the lessons from 1997 are limited, but perhaps the need for a handful of policy commitments restated continuously is still required. I think he stands for more than he is so far able to project, but needs to start laying the groundwork now because it will be too late just before the election. Yeah, I think all of that's very perceptive from the need... Uh, there are some things slow from 1997, and obviously an electorate which uh, has limited attention for politics. I mean, us lot with our podcast here, uh, we're not typical. Um, so, I mean, I don't think uh, the, those five early pledges should be repeated. I don't think the sa- it should be the same pledges. That would be absurd. But there is something about highlighting five accessible policies that symbolise a wider approach to what you want to do to the country um, is something that I think the electorate could take note of. Um, And I agree with you that, um, you know, he does uh, stand for more than he's, uh, uh, or he stands for more than you say he's able to project, that he chooses to project. Um, And I I think that is unnecessarily uh, reticent. Um, And yeah, I completely agree, you need to start laying the groundwork now. You have to put out your ideas, explain why they are your ideas and the policies that accompany them and make sense of it all to the media and the wider electorate and your party. It's really challenging, but that's what you have to do in opposition. Thanks, Sean. Noah Keat was also at uh, King's Place. Uh, oh, thank you for coming, Noah. And, and yeah, he was celebrating finishing university exams. Yeah, there is no better way to celebrate. Um, and, uh, well, we said then, uh, I think the whole audience said good luck for the results. Um, and anyway, uh, oh, yeah, Noah's onto a kind of similar theme. I wanted to write about the value of political courage and the ways in which it presents itself. Parliamentary democracy, for all its brilliance, inherently advantages short-termism, just what we've been talking about, Noah, uh, by focusing on the next election. Yeah, I remember in 1997, um, Tony Blair, one of his first opening statements of when he was prime minister was the campaign for the next election starts today. You know, they were still in that sort of campaigning mode uh, rather than implementation and policy development thought through. To me, political courage is often leaders implementing or proposing a policy which may be politically unpopular in the short term, but is actually helpful, necessary in the longer term. And that is, I think, a really good uh, definition of political boldness. A lot of leaders claim boldness. Uh, Margaret Thatcher did it all the time. Tony Blair, at our best, when at our boldest, when actually they were being quite calculating and short-termist. Um... Anyway, the short-termism, Noah links to Johnson's uh, bounce-back agenda after his confidence vote. Um, Governments have failed to take the necessary measures that combat nimbyism uh, when addressing the housing issue. Uh, Yeah, and and they won't do it. And not many houses will be built, given the fragility of this Prime Minister. He won't want to alienate MPs who won't want more houses in their constituency. Uh, What steps, if any, do you think governments can take to sort out the housing crisis, a crisis which flows into so many other public policy areas? There has to be more building of affordable homes. Um, I was always said that about the right to buy policy that Thatcher still gets lauded for. She wasn't 
interested in the consequences. She loved popping round to have a cup of tea with a tenant who had become an owner. Um, and there are many famous photos of her doing just that. But the hard grind of replacing that affordable rented accommodation didn't happen. And it has to happen. And in a way, you know, Dominic Cummings and his plans for a kind of planning revolution was onto something. It's difficult for the, because of the short-termism you, you mentioned, but that uh, has to happen uh, if Britain is ever to get out of this never-ending housing crisis, which in a way began with right to buy. Hundreds of thousands of homes were built each year in the 70s, um, the, the decade of raging inflation and economic crises. So it can be done and used to be done. Um, uh, yeah, Michael Haskell writes, um, I'm not convinced, in your view, that at some point, some of those who voted for Brexit will take the position that they were misled. Should, as I think both we both believe will be the case, the gradual material economic damage and erosion of our place in the world becomes more evident. Rather, I think they will double down and blame everyone else, especially the EU and the so-called Ramonas for what comes to pass. Yeah, um, possibly, Michael. Um, and I think that phase will be the first phase. Um, and the government's already doing it. We can see it with the protocol. It's all the EU fault, even though this was, got to say again and again, Boris Johnson's proposition to put that border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Uh, Theresa May had a different proposition um, and uh, it had nothing to do with the Ramonas, but they're bl blaming both the EU and the Remainers and that's going to happen. But I think over time, um, and it, it could take years and years, there will be a recognition. And remember, most young people voted Remain. It was a generational divide as well as a regional divide. Um, so I, I think it will change. And anyway, the economic pressures will propel, certainly if there's a Labour government in a hung parliament with the Lib Dems, propel them to have to do something uh, to encourage uh, a, a more... Uh, productive trade relationship with this huge single market on our doorstep. Um, joining the single market will be politically impossible, but something uh, close to it will happen over time. Uh, and I think voters over time, I'm talking years and years, uh, will actually end up pleading for it because look what's happening to the Britain at the moment. Um, but I'm under no illusion it's going to happen quickly. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, oh, yeah, it's Roast Veg Anthony Wilson here from sunny Exeter. Anthony Wilson listens while cooking roasted vegetables. He's not a roasted vegetable himself. Um, and uh, he says, I can't be alone in thinking that the country is crying out for how things would be otherwise should Labour get in at the next election. And yet, in most policy areas, they are silent. Why this awful timidity? Yeah, I think they have kind of got a reading of uh, Labour in the build-up to 1997, which, A, is inappropriate for the tumultuous times of now, and B, misreads it slightly. Um, because, remember, Tony Blair had in inherited a ton of policies, quite of which he kept from John Smith and Neil Kinnock. To give you one example. The proposal for a referendum on electoral reform, I know it never happened, 
but was quite important for Tony Blair to form his relationship his, his, with Paddy Ashdown of the Lib Dems, uh, this promise that there would be a referendum on electoral reform, when he inherited it from John Smith. It was John Smith who uh, agreed to it, reluctantly, actually, a referendum on electoral reform. He inherited a whole range of quite detailed policies. Now, he changed some of them, dropped some of them, uh, introduced new ones. Um, but there was quite a lot. Now, I, I, obviously, this autumn, the Labour Party conference, uh, that will happen, uh, that will begin to happen with Labour. But the groundwork um, about the ideas and values that will frame them needs to be done very loudly uh, and in the build-up to that party conference. Because party conferences have full of diversions and red herrings and media furore and so on around them. Um, there needs to be a kind of big build-up uh, well before then. Thank you. You now over to Australia, Michael Peck. Who I think, judging from your email, Michael, you you are based at Sydney University. Um, and he says, "I'm a citizen of both Australia and New Zealand, but my family roots are in the UK, uh, and I still follow British politics with interest and <laughs> with utter dis- increasingly with utter dismay." He's looking. He's he's getting. He's laying the groundwork for the electoral reform special for this podcast by giving us some examples uh, in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, He said in New Zealand, the first past the post system was frustrating because it often didn't reflect how people had actually voted. Then they introduced electoral reform. He said that was quite a little complicated, but at least the parliament then accurately reflected the electorate nationally. So if, say, 22% voted Green, they would have as near as possible 22% of the seats in Parliament. New Zealand, I think, changed in the mid-1990s, I think. Um, But then he goes on to the Australian system. And he says you you should see the ballot uh, when it comes to voting for the Senate. Um, It's not unusual for voters to be confronted with a huge ballot paper like this. Now, he sent me... A uh, photo has uh, Michael of the ballot for this Senate vote. It is unbelievable. Um, it's it's like one of those big paintings which take up the whole wall of an art gallery. Um, I've never seen anything like it. And he says there are lo- he says he follows his politics assiduously. There are candidates he's never heard of, and it's ridiculously complicated and something to avoid. Uh, making notes, Michael, for the electoral reform special. Thank you very much, and for sending in the photo of the ballot, which looks like something out of Monty Python's Flying Circus. <music> Matt Hayden, who was at uh, uh, King's Bay, says, my view is that The way the party select leaders these days is a disaster. The membership have too much say. Democracy, of course, is important. But is it really wise to let the membership have so much power? It's really unfashionable, but I think there is a problem uh, with electing leaders via the party membership. Uh, There was a more formidable dance when MPs elected leaders uh, on lots of different grounds, I think, Matt. Um, and I also think, and this is really kind of terribly unfashionable, um, that there is a case for uh, giving leaders, I've said this before, and people, you know, I know you, a lot of you disagree, 
leaders more control over the selection of candidates um, because the local parties are not just selecting a candidate to be to represent them and to be kind of a kind of social worker for them at a constituency level, although that is really important. They've got to elect people who are potential ministers, shadow ministers, who can frame arguments, who understand the media, who can do that thing I said earlier, which is the essence of politics, really, democratic politics uh, in a party-based system. Explain to the wider electorate the values of your party in a way that will appeal to the wider electorate without diluting those values, to then develop policies that meet those values and the challenges of the time and then communicate them to the wider electorate. And it is bloody difficult and needs people of great talent. And then, of course, in government, you need people who can develop and implement policies, which, um, as we've been discussing in this podcast, is not the greatest strength in British politics at the moment. Um, uh, another thing about Keir Starmer from Gina Docker, uh, as the next general election comes into view, it doesn't seem that Keir has any clear impression of what a Labour Britain would look like. And if he does, he certainly hasn't given any clues to voters or even party members. Not being Johnson and presenting himself as competent will not be enough to win a general election. We need a story about where Labour will take the country. Uh, yeah, I uh, uh, agree with you. Uh, Gina, Gino, Gina, I've got both here. Gino, I think. Um, and um, uh, the, the thing is, uh, you know, leadership is really, really difficult. And he inherited a tough, tough situation uh, in December, after the December 2019 election. Um, but learning about leadership is constant, even if you are a leader. And um, there is still time, I think, for uh, some of these things to happen. But not much more time. Not much more. Callum Nicholl, finally. Uh, you may possibly remember me as a mad Glaswegian living in Essex who walks his house cats around the garden listening to your podcasts. I do, Callum. And it's one of the more vivid images I've got of all of us lot. You know, it sounds a bit wilder than baking bread or running or rowing or walking along a river or driving into kangaroos, uh, which the rest of us are getting up to. Uh, my question to you relates to your excitement when the name Lee Rowley is mentioned. Oh, yeah, just you've done it again. For new listeners, Lee Rowley, someone at a live show said, watch out for Lee Rowley. And, uh, you know, maybe the next generation of Tory MPs is where the leadership will come from. A week later, Lee Rowley, who I'd never heard of, was put into government. Anyway, Callum has been watching Lee Rowley. Closely. He's on Politics Live four, time, four or five times a year and comes over to me as a weak debater. The programme can offer a good debate depending on the subject and the guests. Rowley, for me, fails to add to such debates, um, particularly when uh, he's engaged with female Labour heavyweights like Helena Kennedy, Siobhan McDonough, Margaret Hodge, etc., uh, he does not display, for me, leadership form. Callum, this is devastating news to those of us who have invested so much into Lee Rowley. Um, and, um, yeah, I have to say, I uh, caught him once and um, was not mesmerised. But ever since that listener 
or attender of the live show has predicted uh, Lee Rowley, as say, who I'd never heard of. Um, he has saw we've now got people in his constituency who write in regularly, keep giving us Lee Rowley updates. Uh, but Callum, you have to some extent broken the spell uh, by watching him on these TV programmes and being uh, unimpressed by our figure to watch. Um, let's put it this way. Whatever happens in the coming epic months, it will not be Lee Rowley who succeeds Boris Johnson, if indeed anyone succeeds Boris Johnson. Wow, well, you know, what we have got uh, coming up uh, demands that we get together each week to make sense of it all. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, and if you could please leave a review on whatever you listen to, you know, the sort of Apple iPod thing or whatever, that would be great because it gets more people uh, access to the podcast. And equally important, if not more important, let's get together again next week to try and make sense of it all. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time and have a great week. Bye. Bye.